0: Good afternoon. Uh, open, open your Bibles with me to First Peter chapter 1. I would say it's a little too early to be singing about snow, but it's coming. My kids are just about to start school, and man, things are changing quick, aren't they? Well, here we are in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 and following. And uh, this this afternoon, we're going to be uh, tracing a message in First Peter in which I've labeled most to be envied, most to be envied. Now, the word envy is not generally a word that we think positively of, and there is a good reason for that. It's, in fact, classified as one of the seven deadly sins. Why would you want to be associated in any way with that? But if we think of the idea of envy, Envy is the idea of desiring something someone else has. And depending upon your desire for that, and your desire then to pursue it such that you might receive it, uh, this can sometimes be a good thing. I'm going to use this word envy, then in a way in which we're thinking about this as we, as believers, are the most of all the world to be envied. We don't always think that way, but it's true. And this is Peter's point in this passage. Now, I don't know if is, uh, as you think about your life growing up, or maybe even today, if you ask the question, who's the most enviable person? Uh, when I was very young, the most envied person in my life, the person I wanted to grow up and be like, was Hulk Hogan. And clearly, I've come pretty close to that. Uh, but then, as I grew in maturity, perhaps a little bit, I began pursuing my dream of being Larry Bird. And let me simply tell you, I failed just as miserably at that as I did at being Hulk Hogan. Nevertheless, these were the heroes, the people that I envied, the, the people that I wanted to be like, because they had these things that I desired after. Uh, today, if we ask the question more broadly to our world, and we ask, who's the most enviable people in our world, it And uh, uh, people like Elon Musk, maybe. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg. Uh, Maybe some big sports stars, LeBron James. And you can go down the line. Generally, it's going to be people who are movie stars, TV stars, somehow on television all the time. Or they're going to be sports athletes. But there's a third group that's quickly moving up the scale and apparently, from what I understand, as those who are more knowledgeable about this than I am, if you ask young people today, who do they most want to be like, it's not TV personalities. It's not sports personalities. Do you know who it is? It's social media personalities. And uh, so maybe you've heard of a guy named Mr. Beast and others, but these are the sorts of people who are, who are significantly influencing people uh, we've got a good friend who is a social media influencer. She doesn't like that language, but that's what she is. She's got 400,000 some followers. And she had the awkward experience of meeting someone recently at a home goods store. And this was a big fan of hers. And uh, the lady who met her could barely talk and was crying. And she said it was a rather awkward experience because she sees herself as a regular person. But this person sees her as somebody to be envied. Well, as we think about who really should be envied in this world, I think Peter is telling us that, in fact, there is a class of people that ought to be envied for what they have. And that is God's people. So read with me in First Peter chapter 1. We're, looking, we're beginning in verse 10. And the things that have been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So the point of the message this afternoon is that we as believers are the most to be envied. If you remember, Peter is building this idea, this identity for believers that we are elect, chosen by God, and therefore blessed eternally. And yet that very election, which gives to us an entire scale of things to be thankful for and to be blessed by, also brings with it exile. It brings with it distance from our world, estrangement, awkwardness in relation to the way in which our world lives versus the way in which we live. And we've noticed that what Peter has been doing so far is he's telling us that we are elect in indicating the blessedness of it. Now, you remember back in verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ who gave us the new birth. But if you recall last week, we looked a little bit about on that exile side. And here's what I think Peter's doing in this broader passage. Peter has said, you are elect and isn't it great? And then he says, Of course, right now you are in exile. And now he's stepping back and saying, Yes, but you are elect. And isn't it great? In fact, I would say that what Peter's essentially giving us is a sandwich. All right? A sandwich in which first he tells us you are blessed for the new birth. You see this in verses three to five. But then he says, You know, there's a little bit of exile in there, there's some difficulty now, for a little while, you're going to endure suffering. You're going to endure challenges. Life isn't always downhill. There are a lot of uphills. And the Christian life is one in which the hills are built in. And he says, there's going to be difficulty. And he then reverses course once more to put surrounding, to put in parentheses this suffering, this challenge, this difficulty we're going to live, the context of that is to remember the blessing. and that's So that's what he's going to be doing. And today we're going to be looking at that second element, the blessing, what you have, others long for. So why exactly is it that does Peter tell us that we as believers are the most to be envied? Well, let's take a look at that. The first reason... You are to be envied, if you know Christ, if you're a believer, you are to be envied for your knowledge of Christ, for your knowledge of Christ. Did you know that the Old Testament prophets longed to know what you know? They deeply desired to have the knowledge that you have at your fingertips, they searched and inquired. In fact, look at the passage with me in verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the salvation that Peter has just been developing, the blessings of it, the fact that Christ has come. Concerning the salvation, here's what he says. The prophets who prophesied about this grace that was about to come, what did they do? They searched and inquired carefully inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them. You know, what's interesting that Peter does here is he multiplies verbs. He takes the idea of searching and then he adds another two verbs to it to talk about searching. And if you were to look these words up in the dictionary, you know what you'd find? They're all essentially the same word. They're synonyms, is what they're officially called. And do you know what he's doing by multiplying them? He's intensifying the search. He's saying that this is the type of search, not for, let's say, and to capitalize on an illustration I used last week, let's imagine I have an appointment at the dentist and I'm about to drive there and I've lost my keys. And so I have to search for my keys. How hard do you think I'll search for my keys? It probably will not be a very diligent search. Uh, you know, I might say, oh, I don't think it's in that room. Oh, well, maybe it's not in that room, all right? Uh, but on the other hand, let's imagine that my wife's in labor, and she says, Tim, it's time to go, and now I'm, I've lost my keys. That's a different type of search. <laughs> I mean, couch cushions are flying. I am going to find those keys. I'm searching diligently. I'm inquiring. I am going to find these keys. And in the same way, I think what Peter is indicating by means of multiplying the verbs, is that the type of search that these prophets of the Old Testament did was deep and pervasive. They were scouring the pages of the prophets, of the prophecies in Scripture, seeking to know. To know what? To know about Christ. This is what they wanted to know. Now, why exactly would they want to know about Christ? I think that this sometimes is a bit of a confusion to us in the New Testament because we say, well, you know, when I read the New Testament, it's pretty clear about the Christ. Have you ever tried to read the Old Testament just to find out about the Christ and try to blank out what the New Testament tells you? Do you know it's actually quite a bit of a challenge? As you're walking through the Old Testament, think with me, all right? Think about Adam and Eve. Eve receives a prophecy from God. Yes, Eve, you have messed up. Adam, you have messed up. But one of your sons, Eve, is going to crush the serpent's head. This is, in Genesis 3.15, what we call the Proto-Evangelium. It is the first gospel, the first statement of the gospel that there's going to come a time in which a son of woman will come and he will make all things right. I think if you read Genesis with a critical eye, what you'll see is that I think she did believe that Cain was going to be that son who's going to crush the serpent's head. But you know what happened between Cain and Abel. So now neither Cain nor Abel are going to be the son who crushes the, the, the serpent's head. And so along comes the son Seth, And yet the promise doesn't come to fulfillment then. There's a promise. Everyone believes it. But not yet. And so we move along in time and all of a sudden we come to Noah. Noah's a righteous man. But he's in a world of unrighteousness. And God destroys the world. So we know that it's through the seed of Noah. But is Noah the man? Clearly not. As you look at the narrative, Noah is not a righteous man in all ways. He can't fulfill the prophecies. And so one of Noah's sons, but they too have problems. And you move along with the prophecy and you come to Abraham. And now Abraham, is he the man? He's not the man, but he's promised that one of his sons is going to be. And he's going to have enough children that is going to be like the sand of the seashore. And one of them will be. And then you get the prophecies of Isaac, that a son is going to be born, a son is born, his son is going to be born, and so you've got Jacob. And Jacob, not Esau, but Jacob is going to be the one through whom the line comes. But then even Jacob has numerous sons. And he gives a prophecy. He says, the seed is going to come through one of my sons, and it's going to be through Judah. But now we're beginning to see more prophecies being given. And some of them indicate that there's going to be a coming priest. Some of them indicate that there's going to be a coming king. And there's a problem here. Because is there only one Messiah or two Messiahs? Because priests come from one line, Levi. But kings come from another line. The royal scepter comes from Judah. How do you put these things together? It's not quite clear. Though there is... In Genesis, this esoteric, I mean, it's it's in the text, but we're not exactly sure what to do with it. When this guy named Melchizedek comes along, and he's a high priest of God, but he comes out of the blue. We're not exactly sure what to do with this guy. But then all of a sudden in Psalms, it says, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We continue along and the prophets begin to speak about this one who's going to come. They give more and more detail about him. But the picture is not quite clear. Uh, Think with me for just a moment. Think of even Isaiah's prophecies. If you're Isaiah and you are the one prophesying God is speaking through you, you prophesy this in Isaiah chapter 9. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it, uphold it with justice, with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Here's Isaiah. And the Holy Spirit of God is using him to record this prophecy, this wonderful prophecy about a king that's going to come and he's going to rule in David's spot. He's going to rule from Jerusalem over the nations and it's going to be a glorious rule. But not long, not much later. Same prophet. God's Holy Spirit inspires him to write these words. In Isaiah chapter 53, Surely, Here's Isaiah, he's reading, he's been used by the Lord to record these prophecies. And he says, the Messiah is going to be a king in which every knee will bow. And the Messiah is going to be one who suffers. Do you think Isaiah knew exactly how to put those things together? In a full orbed picture? I tend to think of it this way, that the Old Testament... Is sort of like a puzzle in which you have no edge pieces. Ah, Maybe you're like me and my girls. If they pull out the puzzles, you know, they're trying to piece together the princess face or whatever. And I'm like, no, we need to do the outside first, right? Because the outside gives you this boundary, this, this helpful guide. And then you can work your way in from there. But much of the Old Testament is difficult, And I would dare say, as you look at the biblical text, that this gives evidence for it, because what were the prophets doing? They were searching the prophecies. In fact, what were they searching for? I'm sorry, what were they searching in in the first place? What were they searching? They were actually searching what seems odd to most of us. They were searching their own prophecies. Notice again with me in verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the, about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicated when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, and the things that had been announced to you those who, through those who preached the good news to you. See, what he says is the prophets... You know, the ones who prophesied to you about the coming grace, they were searching. What were they searching? They were searching their own prophecies. Now, does this mean that Isaiah didn't know what he wrote? Now, some have suggested in the history of the church that because the Holy Spirit inspires individuals to write the scriptures, that maybe there's two messages in scripture. There's God's message and man's message. And so sometimes man doesn't quite know what God's message was in relation to that. Uh, Throughout the history of the church, however, we've denied that. We've suggested that that when God's Holy Spirit inspires an author, he he comes alongside that author and uses the very words, uses the very uh, way in which that author speaks in order to communicate so that the author knows exactly what he's writing. So if that's the case, how is it possible that Isaiah, for instance, or Jeremiah doesn't matter. Well, how is it that they might not know what they prophesied? And I think the point is this not so much that Isaiah didn't know what he said, but that he didn't know how to put it all together. He knew that Jesus, the Messiah, didn't know it was necessarily going to be the name Jesus. He knew that the Messiah was going to rule, and he knew that the Messiah was going to suffer. And he had two puzzle pieces and he just didn't know how to put them together, but he searched, and he inquired diligently, seeking to put the puzzle together so that he might know. And you say, is that really the case? But remember, the disciples, when Jesus is walking among them, he's teaching them, they got it pretty easily, right? Remember when Jesus comes and he says, who do you you say that I am? And they say, the Messiah. And Jesus says, you're right, and I'm going to suffer. Do you remember what Peter does? He says, hey, Jesus, can I talk to you in private over here? Jesus, what are you talking about? That's not what the Messiah is going to do. And Jesus says, well, get behind me, Satan. But elsewhere, he says, do you not know, to, to the religious leaders, do you not know the scriptures? When he comes even on the road to Emmaus, he's walking with these two men after his resurrection. And they're talking and they're saying, we're lamenting over what's happened in Jerusalem. And Jesus says, what's happened in Jerusalem? They say, do you not know? And they talk about Jesus. And then he says, oh, you slow of heart to believe all that the scripture has said. And then he develops for them what the Old Testament scripture said. It's not really until the spirit comes along that the disciples truly understand this. All of that said, what are the prophets doing? They're seeking to understand what the scriptures teach. They're not only looking at their own prophecies, they're actually looking at other prophets' prophecies. So notice in Daniel chapter 9, here's a really clear example of this. In the first year of Darius' reign, that's what he's talking about in chapter 9. In the first year of Darius' reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years... That according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Do you know what he's saying here? He's saying that I discerned when I was reading the prophecy of Jeremiah that we would only be in captivity for 70 years. In fact, Jeremiah exactly said this. He said in Jeremiah twenty-five eleven, These nations shall serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. You know what Daniel was doing? He was taking the Bible seriously. He read Jeremiah's prophecy. He was searching and inquiring in the scriptures and saying, What do they say about what's to come? And as he did so, he discovered that it said that this would last for 70 years, and he discerned that that time period was coming. And he gives the prophecy of the 70 years. But what exactly did they want to know? We've already said it's Christ, but there are really two things that he wants to know more, or these prophets wanted to know more about. Notice verse 11 they're inquiring what person. Second, they're inquiring. What time? They want to know. Who is, this go- who is this Messiah going to be? What's he going to be like? And second, when is he going to come? Who's he going to- what's he going to be like? And when's he going to come? Notice then that the scriptural text tells us that these prophets spent their days, spent their years longing after this knowledge. But I would argue that this knowledge was not merely Simply, that they wanted to know facts. They wanted something more than that. Because you remember, when Adam and Eve fell in the garden, the fall did not merely affect their eternal destinies, it affected their relationship today. What did Adam and Eve do before they fell? They walked and talked with God in the garden. They walked with God. He was with them. And do you know what mankind lost most significantly at the fall? Was that presence of God among them. And and you could actually read the entire Old Testament as a narrative of recovering God's presence. The the temple, the uh, tabernacle, all of these are actually God's presence coming back among his people for temporary time periods. But it could only be temporary at that time. And this is why I'm suggesting that these prophets did not merely want to know about Christ, but they wanted to know Christ. Indeed, it tells us that when they were prophesying, what were they prophesying about? They were prophesying concerning the spirit of Christ who is in them. They were actually experiencing to a limited degree that which we have received. Peter here in this letter has already indicated That you, if you're a believer, have experienced the working of God in your life such that the very Holy Spirit of God dwells in you. We have recovered, if only in spirit, a portion of what was lost in the fall in the new covenant, but only in the new covenant. Did you know you have blessings that David never had? Do you know you have blessings that Isaiah wished that he had? And that blessing is the very presence of the Holy Spirit among us. Do you remember the oddest phrase, or at least one of the odd phrases, that Jesus uses when he's on the earth and he tells the disciples? He says, it's better that I leave. Have you ever wondered how weird that is? Because in in some sense, don't we want to say, no, actually it would be better if you stayed. But here's the thing, if Jesus had stayed in his physical body, He would have been in one place. But by leaving and granting the gift of the Holy Spirit, in the time period of the Spirit, we are all granted the very presence of God. What is it that Paul says that motivates him? Do you remember Paul talking about all of the things that he had in his past? You remember he says, I was circumcised the eighth day. I was of the tribe of Benjamin. I had all of the things I sat at the feet of Gamaliel. You tell me anybody who had some credentials in Judaism, I had them and I had them in surplus. And he says, But I count it all as rubbish. It's all trash. I don't care about any of it. Why? What's replaced it for Paul? Here's what he says. Indeed, I count everything as loss. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Oh, my friend. Do you know the blessing it is to live under the new covenant with the very spirit of Christ living in you so that you would know Christ? The Old, the Old Testament prophets longed to know what you know. Now... I have to explain something, because maybe when I read it, you thought it was a bit odd. At the end of this passage, Peter makes a statement that is a bit of a throwaway statement, at least in reference to Peter. He doesn't seem to explain it, but we need to somehow explain it. Notice he says at the end of verse 12 there, he says, By the Spirit sent from heaven, things into which the angels long to look. What does Peter mean when he says the angels long to look into this? And I would simply say uh, that there's a bit of mystery here, but you do realize that angels are not divine beings. Angels are limited beings. Angels actually only know that which God has given them access to know. It's long been my view that the angels were actually unaware of God's eternal plan of sending Christ to die upon the cross. I think partly this explains why Satan doesn't attempt in some ways to to prevent this. That actually goes along with it. But imagine the angelic beings as they discover the plan of God. There's an experiential knowledge that you and I have of God that the angels will never have. The angels may know a lot of facts about God. But you know one of the things that the angels don't know about God, or at least in reference to uh, the fullness of His being, they know nothing of His mercy and grace and kindness. Well, they know of His kindness, but not His mercy and grace. See, the fallen angels because of their extensive knowledge, were immediately judged. And those who remained were continued on in in a good relationship with God. But as mankind sees the unfolding drama of God's grace in salvation through Christ, I think the angels are fascinated by God's kindness and grace. It's a It's a side of God's character that they have not observed before. But they are, right now, observing in our lives God's goodness, grace, and mercy and kindness to those he has given that kindness to. All that said, I think Peter's point is this, that the the Old Testament prophets long to know what you know. Even the angels long to know what you know. You are in an enviable place. There's a second reason, I think, that Peter tells us we are in an enviable position. You are to be envied for God's intentional grace, for God's intentional grace. There's a great exchange that happens in this passage. You see it in verse 11 and 12. Notice in verse 11, he says, Inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ was in them indicated when he predicted the sufferings, and most English translations put it this way, the sufferings of Christ. That could be translated this way, the sufferings destined for Christ. In this passage, I am convinced that God is giving to us a note of his divine sovereignty. And note the other passage in verse Number 10, concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours. That actually is the same, uh, same word there that, that I translated a little bit later that says that was to be destined. And so there are two notes of God's sovereignty in this passage. The first is this, that we are destined for grace. And Christ was destined for suffering. And these two things are not unrelated. Indeed, the only way in which we can experience God's grace is through the experience of Christ's suffering. The prophets prophesied about this suffering that was to come because it was the only way for mankind to be rightly related to God. You see, the Old Testament, or that you see the Church Age believers, are to be envied for God's intentional grace, as this passage teaches us. There is a grace that was destined for you. God chose us before the foundation of the world that we should be included in Him. But notice as well that this grace did not come to us. Merely or simply straight from the very mouth of God, but actually comes to us through the benefit or the blessing of others. And in fact, if you were to trace back your salvation, your experience of salvation to the process by which you came to know the Lord, I bet, there were a couple of individuals involved along that way. And here's what Peter's saying to the people in Asia Minor who he's writing to here. He says, The prophets of the Old Testament, they knew that they were prophesying, that what they were prophesying was not for themselves, but was for you. And in many ways, I think they longed for it to be for them, but they knew it wasn't for them. They knew it was for a future time. They knew it was destined for other people to enjoy, and yet they did it anyways. Notice there's a second group that's responsible for bringing this grace of God. Notice in verse 12, again, here's the prophecy it was revealed to them. They knew, God showed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have been now been announced to you. Notice the second group of people, through those who preach the good news to you. By the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Both the prophets and the preachers or the teachers or the proclaimers of the truth. Both of them being motivated by the Holy Spirit to give this truth. And the bottom line truth of that then is this. That in order for the word of God to effectuate the salvation, to bring about new life. It requires believers to care about others. And to reach out. So what are the implications then of what we should think about in reference to this passage since Peter tells us you are the most to be envied. How should we think about this? I think there are two things or actually three implications. The first is this. Let this knowledge temper your suffering. Let this knowledge temper your suffering. Again, remember this sandwich technique he gives. You are blessed Because you have received the new birth. And from the new birth comes an inheritance. A secure salvation. Oh what a blessing it is to be in Christ. And now he says. And remember. That you have that for which others have longed for. You are to be envied for your knowledge. Your experiential knowledge of Jesus. And in the midst of that is the blessing worth the difficulty because here's the question that every one of us has to answer and this is this is the teaching of Jesus Jesus does it throughout the gospels and he says count the cost discipleship costs there are going to be personal relationships you might lose. There's going to be job opportunities you might lose. There's going to be all sorts of things, of difficulties that you are going to face because you've embraced Christ. But Peter says, that's all true. But the blessings far outweigh it. You are going to be an elect exile, but the exile is worth it in light of the blessing of election." So the first thing we learn is that we should, in fact, let this knowledge temper suffering. But the second thing we should learn from this passage is that we should ask God to use us to bring this blessing to others. Notice again that there are two groups of people who God used in order to bring salvation to you. And you probably know other groups of people who were responsible. There's a whole army of people that was necessary for the gospel to come to you. And how then will the next generation come to know the truth? How will the people of Belleville come to know the truth if we are not faithful in expressing this truth, in giving our energies and efforts for the sake of others? If, in fact, you believe that you are to be most envied, do you not want to share that with others, that they might also... Have the blessings that you've partaken of? I think there's a third implication. There are really only two options that we will ever face in this life. We are either the most to be pitied or the most to be envied. Do you remember... Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, I've heard that there are some among you who are saying that there is no resurrection of the dead. And then he says this, But if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And all who have fallen asleep, they're perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. In other words, he's the first one who fell asleep and raised to dead. And we believe that others will join him, including we ourselves. Oh, friend, could you get this in your mind this afternoon? You really only have two options. Either the message of Christ is true, and there is an eternal life, there is an eternal blessedness awaiting those who trust in Christ. And if that is true, then we are the most to be envied in this world. And if it's not, we are the most to be pitied. Because here we are, we're living along on this delusion. And we're sacrificing, we're living a life of exile, and when we die, it's all over. Now, please don't hear me. I'm not saying it's a 50-50 chance out there. I'm saying that you can't sit on the fence. There's no fence here to sit on. Do you remember what Jesus says? You're either with me or you're against me. There's no fence and friend, today, if you don't know Christ, let me tell you, those who know him are the most to be envied. And would you today submit to the Lord Jesus Christ, embrace him? Is it going to be difficult? Are there going to be trials? Can I promise you that you're going to get every job you ever want and all the blessings are going to come your direction? No, I can't do that. In fact, I can promise you there's going to be difficulty. That's what Jesus told us. So I can promise you but I can also promise you that it will be worth it all. Oh, friends, we, of all the world, are the most to be envied. Father, I thank you that you've given to us such a gospel that we can celebrate in this way. Oh, Father, use us to spread this message of the gospel so that others might also know the blessing of God. Of election, know the blessing of knowing you, Father. Oh Lord, I don't know every person who's in this room. I don't know if there are some who've wandered in here and do not know you, but I pray that they would recognize that they cannot sit on the fence. Help them to see that you are worth it, Father. Oh, so many generations before us long to, to have what we have. Thank you for it. And may that be a motivation for us to pursue others so that they might share in our glory. In Jesus' name, amen.